Ron DeSantis. Ron DeSantis might be more fascist than Donald Trump and just a little bit smarter. It's not necessarily, oh, we're going to have a civil war too, but I'm just saying, if you look at that statistic there, it shows just because the civil war is, is over doesn't mean that animosity just goes away or you automatically are like, yeah, we were wrong. Hey, I'm so sorry. Yeah, we were wrong. This is the Snap Up, where each week Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla help you digest their favorite stories from the world of sports and politics. The, the history books have gotten away with a lot of the bad things that we've done as society because they were non-Christian nations. And just like the dreaded Snap Book, don't be surprised when start bringing you over to the left side of the fairway. Back in the good old days, you could have gotten a job doing just about anything if you sat there and said, I have a college degree. But now, that's not the case. So we're going to sit there, we're going to back on these kids, we're going to sit there and say, you're going to owe, you know, thousands of dollars of debt. And in many cases, some of them pay for maybe twenty or $30,000 they borrow. They might pay two or three hundred thousand dollars in their lifetime with all the competitive interest. And now here are your hackers of the week, Tim Costello and Scott Barzilla. Welcome back into the Snap Hook Podcast. Tim Costello, Scott Barzilla coming in at you hot. On a Thursday evening, coming out on a Friday morning. Scott, how are we doing? Uh, we're doing great. And the thing is, we probably want to start off, you know, with why you're hearing this on a Friday instead of a Thursday. Uh, it looks like, you know, Tim's day job starting to heat up here. So, you know, tell us, you know, how, how is that soccer team looking? We are 1-0-1, uh, two games into the season. Um, definitely, you know, had a game Wednesday night, last night. And so recording on Tuesday just just really wasn't an option with the amount of stuff that I had to get done. Um, but you know, so far it's been it's been exciting. First game of the season, first my first game at, at the helm was was a giant kick in the teeth. Uh, we had two hours of lightning delay, tons of rain. Um, you know, just just didn't really have the crowd that we were looking for. Uh, but you know, last night uh, we really bounced back. Strong crowd, a lot of uh, youth involvement from some of the local soccer teams there that play in like the Ellington Youth Soccer League. And, um, you know, we, we didn't get the win last night. We got a draw. But, man, we, we play an aggressive brand of soccer that is is really fun to watch. I, I'm not a huge soccer guy, but I even I just stop and watch because – they are they are fast, they're physical, they're aggressive, and it's it's really really exciting soccer. So yeah, yeah, I you know we texted earlier. We always do this, you know, during the week, and you know it sounds like you got some really good numbers, you know, for that second game. And and for those of y'all who are you know listening to this, you know, around the country, uh, Texas pretty much. You know, the schools pretty much all get out around the same time. I know uh, Tim's wife got out last week, but most schools are pretty much getting out either, you know, this week or, you know, maybe a few next week. So I got to think, you know, those numbers of those future home games in the summer will really pick up. Yeah, we got four left, uh, three of which are Saturday nights. Those are always going to be better, uh, better crowds than your 
weekday nights. Um, but I, I'm really, really excited. Was on the the phone with um, one of the, the board of directors on the Arlington Chamber of Commerce today, and we're setting up like a, a chamber night at the game, and and all of the chamber members get to come out for free. And um, you know, Scott, one of the things that we're doing I'm, that I'm really excited with is we do no cost camps for kids, uh, where we host soccer camps at no cost for parents because we know that there's a lot of things pulling at parents' purse strings right now. And um, that shouldn't be a reason why your kid doesn't excel on the field. And so our players and our coaches host no-cost clinics and camps for for the youth. And um, we just had one that actually educated the coaches that work the youth league. Um, Because all these guys are volunteers, right? Their kids like soccer, so they coach soccer. But they may not have a lot of experience in that. And so we sent our players out to teach them some drills, to teach them how to work on the fundamentals with these young kids, uh, to make sure they're starting out with a strong base and, and, and that they're, they're learning the game the right way. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the best thing is you're probably ending up finding there is that, yeah, as you build those connections within the community, and you certainly, you know, those parents are going to be, you know, really appreciative you know, of what y'all are doing for them. And so, you know, you're going to get more spectators. You're going to get more support, you know, in that end. So it's, it's a win-win all the way across the board. Yeah. And that's, and that's really kind of how soccer works. A lot of these teams in our, in our league kind of had academies and youth teams that started out as almost like in select, like a select baseball team that these guys played together a long time. And then there was support for this team and it grew and, and to where it is. And so that's how a lot of them started. So for us, we're kind of going about it backwards. Um, you know, not all these academies are free of cost. A lot of them cost a lot of money. Um, and so that's that's something my owner is really excited about. And, you know, with, with the work that I do for the first tee, it's, it's something that, that I'm passionate about and excited about as well. Is it, I don't care what the sport is, Scott. At the end of the day, sports are good for kids. They, you learn life lessons in ways that you only can uh, by competing. And it doesn't matter if it's golf, football, baseball, basketball, archery. Uh, you know, a good friend of mine's daughter does archery. It doesn't matter. There's there's life lessons to be learned from from getting out there and testing yourself. Yeah, that's one of the things. Um, I don't know if we you knew that we did at St. Bernadette's when you were going through high schools. That uh, uh, a youth minister back then, her name was Nancy Moss. Uh, I'm sure Tim remembers Nancy. Uh, not not her biggest fan. Quite frankly, I, I don't know if you would get that answer from a lot of. Actually, I know you would get that answer from a lot of people, but yeah, not uh, not Nancy's biggest fan. I could probably guess as to why that was. Um, however, what she, you know, one of the things she did is she had me run a couple of volleyball camps through there. And I don't know if you knew that that we did that back then, uh, and I think we charged a very nominal rate, uh, you know, because they probably we probably gave away like a T-shirt or something like that, you know, just enough to cover those costs, you know. Because I, I certainly wasn't taking any money home uh, doing that. And, and it was kind of fun. You know, it was, you know, low pressure, you know, just kind of everybody's learning the sport. Uh, we'll, we'll have to get into Nancy talk later on and you know, kind of figure out what your, your critiques are. But we, we, don't, we don't have that kind of time this evening, I'm sure. Yeah, it's, it's more just a lack of warmth more driving kids away from Catholicism. But again, this is the sports show. We'll get into that. We'll get into that maybe on a, a religious leaders episode or something. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's in general, Scott, 
I remember St. B's has they had like a basketball league at one point that I looked into, and then like the level of play was just not what I was looking for. Um, I'm not trying to say I'm a high level player, but I I did play you know for the school and at different levels, and and uh, when I showed up to a St. B's game, I was like, this is this is not for me. I actually ended up coaching one of those at St. Paul's uh, actually years ago, but and and. I was only coaching one game. The regular coach couldn't show up. And it was one of those where the other church we were playing or bringing out all the ringers, you know, all the kids that played varsity basketball for, you know, whatever school they are. And we've just got kids who are kind of like, hey, you know, I kind of want to play. We had one poor guy that was on Creek's team. And he was just like, you know, he had to play the whole game. It, yeah. was, just, it was just a sad thing. Uh, and we lost, you know, probably like 50 to 12. Uh, it kind of reminded me, we, I remember in your intramurals in college once, we played all the football players. It was my dorm. You know, so we got a bunch of like five foot nine white guys like me playing against these football players who are, you know, not basketball players, but they're really good athletes. And I think we lost like 60 to four or something like that. It was just, it, it was rough. So when I was in college, I was, I was big on the intramural scene. My, my freshman year, I showed up. I played everything intramurals, and I and I mean everything. I I entered the ping pong intramural tournament at St. Mary's University. Came in second, won a T-shirt, felt pretty good about it. But again, I played everything: football, softball, baseball, even played soccer. Played a lot of basketball. Um, and like most of the teams I was on, we were pretty competitive. And then I transferred to UH and played a lot of intramurals at UH as well. And I I show up. Uh, for my first intramural game, and I'm and Scott, I am getting dunked on regularly by a collection of six foot four to six foot six guys. Uh, I am the there's no white guys on their team. Our guy is our team is all like white guys who went to like parochial schools. Me, you know, like just a collection of dudes, and we're just getting wrecked. So I'm like, okay, this was ridiculous. And then I see an advertisement on the student website for an under six foot league. I'm like, this is, this is more my speed. I'm good. I can handle this. I'm still freaking getting dunked on in this league. And, and I'm like, I'm begging the ref. I'm like, we need a height check on that guy. Like he's easily six one. I mean, it was like Muggsy Bogues, family reunion, Scott. I was getting run up and down the court. I was getting thrown down on, but the best part was UH's student portal had a place where you could vote your team's MVP of every game. Well, I, I think I was the only one who realized that. And being the guy that I am, I voted for myself every single game. And so I was the team's MVP at the end of the season. You get like an email that's just like, you're the team MVP. It was like, I really did a nice job of patting myself at the back this year. Uh, so the best two intramural experiences I had, you know, on the positive end, on the negative end, uh, we had a fraternity at TCU uh, It was called Brothers Under Christ. I don't know if you remember, if you had a chapter uh, at any of your schools. We did not, no. At least maybe not at, at St. Mary's. I, I know nothing about the Greek scene at, at UH because I had already gone Greek at St. Mary's and I was not interested in like mixing it up with, with new Greek people. I, I roomed with a guy. He ended up being the best man at my wedding who was a member of the fraternity. And I went one time. You know, just to see if I want to join. It's one of those where it, it's a fraternity in the loosest sense of the word. Like you, you're not going through pledge week or anything like that. 
And they had a female fraternity that was similar. They called his. I always thought they ought to go females under Christ or sisters under Christ, but you know they they uh, they avoided that suggestion for obvious reasons. If you could kind of follow the acronym on that, um, but uh, I remember one time they invited me to do a trivia contest at our sports bar, and, and it was an actual contest. Tim, we had thirty questions. I counted two baseball, football, or basketball questions out of thirty. They're throwing like hockey at me, and I'm just like, and you know the hockey, you know hockey thing is they're going to go who holds the Gretzky, and it'll be like a uh, first save. So it's like damn it, <laughs> you know. But um, but the most fun I had though, because I, I you know you talked about your scramble uh, that you were supposed to have played in you know a couple weeks ago, uh, when my wife went to Rice for her uh, graduate degree, they allowed me to play in intramurals. So I did an intramural golf tournament. They had that at UH too. It was the coolest shit ever. They had an intramural golf tournament. It was at Clear Creek. You know, of course that we, you, you and I both play, played, you know, maybe a dozen times. And my team was only a three man team. And so they, and the people running the tournament, they have no freaking clue. Right. And so they just sit there and say, Hey, one of y'all can hit two shots. Well, I'm the one carrying like a eight handicap at this point. My the two partners are probably, you know, maybe 20s on a good day. And so they're like, hey, dude, you just take two shots. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you, know, so like, you know, like the last hole, we're about 130 out after my drive. And I'm yanking out a wedge. You know, and I choked the first one. You know, and so they're like, well, hey, you get a second shot. It's okay. So I stick it three feet. You know, we put it in for the birdie. For the one-shot victory, we win the intramural golf tournament. And I'm not even a student at the school. I mean, it's, that's just the most hilarious shit I've ever heard. When I was at UH, we had intramurals for golf, and it was fantastic. It was two-man scramble, and everybody played straight up. And we played at Herman Park Golf Course, which is unbelievably short. Like that course was built when persimmon woods were a thing. It's a lot of dog legs. It's it's in the it's right by the zoo in Houston. Um, so you're playing two man scrambles. Well, my partner played on the high school golf team at Strake Jesuit, which is not an easy team to make. Um, I played at Lake. You know, I'm long. So we go out and we rip this course, Scott. Like we we shoot like seventy four in a two man in a two man scramble. Um, I think the next closest score was like 80, 81 or eighty two because it was just like these were like just fraternity bros who thought they were good at golf, and then they stepped out and, and this guy Casey and I just we played to win that day, and uh, man, that was a satisfying feeling to walk off the green on that 18th hole and just like no one was even close to what we threw out there that day. Uh, the one more positive story, cause this is not the, the bit of this team, but when my, my, when I was a student teacher, the uh, school I was at had a tournament. They had a, it ended up being, cause it was after school one day. So they ended up making it a nine hole scramble. And so they put me, and this is probably the best golf I've ever played in my life. They put me with the, the guy does security. I might as well have been playing by myself. I mean, it, it was just, you know, he was like, you know, I think 
technically a 36 because I don't know. Can you go above a 36 these days? I don't think so. I think two a hole is uh, kind of the max. So we'll give him a 36. We shot an even par 36, which is to say I shot an even par 36. And they had a closest to the pin, low drive, you know, competition. I took both of them. I stuck one on the par three, about a foot away. And then, um, and then the you know, long drive contest, we had a one where I think I drove the green. Um, and so, you know, I, I could have been, you know, I was pretty long back in you know my day because this is back when I'm like 23 years old. So, I mean, I'm at pretty much, you know, physical peak here. And I think the, the principal just offered me the golf coaching job, like, on spec on the job, you know, right there. I didn't take it because, you know, this te- they, they didn't have much fatigue. But, okay, so today's, you know, before we get into today's focus, kind of go to the other side of things. And I know last week we uh, we talked about me getting golf fitting. I was going to say, you're just talking about all the good golf that you're capable of, Scott. And We've I went – This is our – our as a podcast, our goal is to get you back to not that spot, not an eight, but we want to get you back to relevant golf, right? That's kind of been our goal the last few weeks. You know, you had scheduled the fitting. The fitting was Tuesday. We had the fitting. We've got the data. What did the data say? Well, let's talk about some good news and bad news, right? Uh, the good news is that I can actually play a little bit of golf, as it turns out. Now, we're playing on the simulator, and I'm not sure how accurate the distances are. So you kind of have to just go like what you're doing on the simulator and not really think about it in terms of what would happen on a golf course. Because I know like in a, in a real round of golf, I'm going to get more roll than what you know they're having on the simulator thing. But after I started swinging some irons, I gained a good club and a half. Uh, after I, you know, chunked my irons aside and started going to what they were going with. Uh, and then they, uh, they were doing all ping drivers. And so what this, what this uh, and it was a kid. It was like maybe, kid is like maybe 19, 20 years old. I'm sorry, anybody under 40 to me as a kid, you know, you'll just have to, you have to deal with it, right? And so what he did was, you know, it was actually pretty cool. He could sit there. He got uh, shafts out of this, you know, shaft container. And so he just quickly used this tool, pulled off the head, put it on a shaft. Here, give this a shot. So the irons, I did, you know, there was like Mizunos, I think, for a couple of them. Uh, I think the ones that he ended up landing on were the TaylorMades, but look kind of like hybrids. The TaylorMade Stealth HDs are what they yeah. are. Yeah. And, and, and it felt, and, and this is the key thing, I think, with anybody who's trying out the game of golf is that in addition to what the, you know, the computer's telling you, because, you know, we could fudge that as much as we want. How does the club feel? It just felt more solid to me. And I think that's, you know, really the, the big deal there. And I was gaining a good 15 yards. Uh, he only had me hit his seven irons. So, I mean, I can't tell you about long irons or anything like that. Then we switched to the driver. It's all pinks. That's all he's got are pinks. In fact, the same basic head. I mean, it's a 10 and a half degree. Uh, I think it was the 425, the G425, if that sounds correct. Uh, that, that's the one they have before this one. Is The newest one's 430. 
Yeah, I don't think he was doing the 430s or doing 425s. They were just alternating shafts, right? Now, height-wise, I don't think I was getting it that much higher than what I normally hit, but it definitely, you could tell the difference between what I'm playing right now and those. Like, it felt a lot more solid. And they were going 20 yards further, easily. And so that's why I still think you should be in a 12 degree. And, you know, I think you would get even more carry. Um, but it, that's what's good about the fitting process is at least finding the right shaft right now. Now, as as we take this data that you got, you know, one of the things I was doing Tuesday, you know, behind the scenes, look at the podcast is I'm sending you, you know, lookalikes or, you know, plays like and. They're not going to be knockoff brands, right? I think. Years ago, the lookalikes of the plays like were, you know, tour, tour made instead of tailor made or, you know, tour model, stuff like that. Like, no, we're going to find some name brand stuff, but we're going to find stuff that was made within the last five years that's either, you know, new old stock or slightly used, previously loved, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, Scott, what was the price tag that they gave you on all those brand new clubs? That would have been the bad news. Uh, the bad news was in order for me to feel like I could play golf again, according to them, in order to buy just a driver and the iron set combined is 1500 And that's not counting. Now, the funny thing was we mentioned Ryan from Curated. Uh, Ryan from Curated, if you're listening, because I know you listened to uh, you know the first one we talked about golf club fitting. You know, Did he get offended? Did he get offended on my, on my used club recommendations? Uh, he did not. In fact, he uh, offered me a free, you know, a free box of balls, you know, for bringing them up. And I was like, "Just you?" That's what. It, that's what he said. Oh I, wow! I think I'm owed six of those balls, Scott. Oh, I have no problem paying that off. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but here's the thing, though, uh, and and I fed him the same stuff that I fed you because it's like you know what. I, and this is what I told Tim you know, right after the whole thing. Is it's a data point. That's what it is. It's a data point. And so I asked Ryan from Curated, hey, how much are my clubs worth to you? And he, you know, I, I showed him a picture of them and he sent me back 225. I was like, okay. And then I was like, well, how much are my woods worth to you? And he's like, nothing. It's like, okay. So I went to this, you know, went to the store. You want to know how much they wanted for my clubs? You take a guess. All of them, or you know, separately, just, just the irons. Uh, you have the TaylorMade M twos, four twenty five. So they they said two twenty. So okay. right, you know, right five within five bucks of curated. You know, so apparently there's like at a. I'm sorry, are you saying what they offered at the store? Yeah, that's what they. Okay, offered. I thought you were saying what they'd sell them for. No, no, that's what they offered. So he offered this about the same thing as Ryan from Curated. Now Ryan from you know Curated, I did uh, send him this message, and I'll you know we'll say that right loud. Now Tim and I will more than be more than willing to really hype up Curated. You know, uh, you hook us up with you know maybe maybe some irons or you know maybe some woods. You know we'll. we'll but, you know, the funny thing is, is that when I spit out the same data to you, and I just flat out told him, I said, listen, you know, I could maybe afford it, maybe half of what this shop was uh, wanting. 
he's still, you know, the irons are like he's trying to sell me are still eight ninety nine, which are less than the cells. But it's not dearly. It's just not going to be competitive enough. And I, I think he probably realizes that. But, uh, but this is where I pitched the idea to Tim, and I'm going to pitch it on air here. Uh, I'm going to give him a free plug. I think, you know, Tim's got a baby on the way. I think he needs a good side hustle. So this is the side hustle that I propose for Tim. When my parents bought their last two cars, they actually had a guy who went into the dealership for them and negotiated the price on their behalf. And so basically what they said was, we want a Lexus. We want this model. And so this guy went to every Lexus dealer around Houston and even outside of Houston and said, you know, okay, here's the best price I could get you. And, you know, it ended up saving them about, you know, $1,500, $2,000 over what they would have paid themselves if they'd gone into dealerships themselves. And I think for the, uh, you know, for the work, he asked for like $500. So if you talk about the difference, they probably saved $1,500. This guy made $500. Where all he had to do was just go around to a few dealerships and negotiate a price. So here's what we're doing for Tim here. We're going to make Tim a golf personal shopper. So here's my proposal. I think Tim can make, I think he could do two different things. I think the bare basic what he could do is he could, you know, he, he's a young guy. I think he could figure out the technology. He's going to send you out a Google form, which is going to have like a questionnaire about your game. And if you fill out the, uh, the questionnaire and that's it, he'll charge you a hundred bucks and, and he'll go out and buy you your clubs. You're going to have to pay him in advance. You're going to sit there and say, I want my clubs for 500 or under or whatever the price is that you want, plus his $100 fee. That's the bare basic model. Now, you could also pull what I would call the, the realtor model, where if you, like, say, okay, so, Tim, have you, uh, did y'all buy this house, or is this house, you know, existing before? Uh, like, did, uh, did your wife have this house beforehand, or did y'all? No, we bought it together. Okay, did y'all sell a property? No. Okay, so like when my wife and I bought this house, we had to sell our house and we had to buy this house. So our realtor gets twice the fee because she gets it, she got it coming and going. Now, I grew up with this realtor. She took really good care of us. Um, but I figured Tim could do the same thing. If you want to trade in your clubs, Tim's going to get that $100 fee coming and going. So there's $200. Now, if you want Tim to come to a driving range of, his, of your choice or his choice, maybe he could watch you swing for 30 minutes. Maybe you know, we could say charge you know the full 250 if you want to trade in clubs and fit clubs. So, what do you think, Tim? Is, is this a business you know proposition you want to be a part of? Yeah, absolutely. I I love finding golf clubs, man. That's a, a hobby and a passion of mine, and. Um, I, I think as my, my child is born, I, I think I have to retire finding clubs for myself. So I'd love to be able to help other people do that. Maybe I'll have to get a little, little Facebook page going and, um, see if anybody wants to bite Scott, maybe run a few Facebook ads. Who knows? 
I definitely would, but see, here's the thing. And, and you mentioned I, I saw the beryllium copper pigs again. It brought back just a flood of memories that we had, you know, discussion offline. And one of the things I remember about those pigs is that they were highly controversial at the time. And of course, Tim wasn't literally alive during this controversy. So he probably had to read about it and hear about it after the fact. But the whole thing is that and if you look at them, and if you look at your current irons, the grooves on the irons are a lot closer together on these on these pig uh, pig And so there's a difference between U grooves and V grooves. And so what happens is when you, uh, particularly when you have a lot of clubhead speed, uh, you could generate a ton of spin with those grooves. And so the USGA decided, nah. You're not going to be able to play those on our tour because uh, they just, you know, way too much speed, way too much. And I, I don't think they ever went down to the uh, – I, I remember uh, quite a few players having them when I played the HGA. So I don't think the HGA ever outlawed them you know, like the, uh, the tour did. But uh, seeing them again, and Tim suggested, hey, maybe you want to buy them as a piece of art and display in the living room. And I'm like – if I were to buy the clubs that they were selling at this shop, I'm pretty sure I'd be sleeping in my car for about a week. When I was uh, single, when I was single before I met my wife in my townhouse, I had a classic Ben Hogan bag. I had like Ben Hogan irons. I had some fancy putters and I considered that a living room decoration. I thought I had decorated my living room with this beautiful, Classic Ben Hogan bag. Well, no, this is, it, it had nothing to do with the tackiness of the decoration. It, oh, really, I, I guess, I guess what you're saying is my decoration is tacky? No, no, what I'm saying, I was it saying, was. No, it was. I'm saying, I don't think my wife would object on that level. I think she'd more object on the level that, you know, we just shelled out, you know, a few hundred dollars for uh, our daughter to now join band and choir at the same time. Uh, she also has the, she also wants a trip that she wants to, uh, you know, go to, uh, to Spain and France, you know, when she's graduating. And so, you know, you start, sounds like she needs a job. Well, you know, funny thing, we've told her she's going to pay for a part of that. So she, she's, she's on the hook. She's got some skin in the game. You should send her uh, down to Carabas on Bay area Boulevard. Tell her Tim sent you. Uh, you know, we, we might consider that down the road, but we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see how these things go. But, but the whole thing is, is that I, and, and this is part of what that shop and what Ryan from Curie doesn't understand is at the point where I'm at in my life, I can't afford to spend that much. I mean, I literally could, but I can't justify it just given the other stuff that we're doing. And so I'm going to have to go the cheaper route. And so, you know, Tim's business model you know, could be because, you know, I could sit there and say, hey, you know, I'll give you 500 bucks plus whatever you get from my irons and that's your budget. And, you know, I think Tim could hook me up. I know I could. Absolutely know I could. And, you know, that's it'd be a fun endeavor. You know, I sent some stuff over to you already that um, I think would be good fits. But, you know, I. Ping drivers are so good that you can go back to like a Ping 4, a G410 and um, get the same 
gain that you're getting now by just by getting the right fitting into it, right? So, um, yeah, would love to. If you want to hand me $500 plus your old club, Scott, I'd love to get that done for you. Okay, so to set up uh, what our overall topic is for tonight, we've been talking about how bad my golf game is. And, and one of the things I love about sports, actually there's two things that make sports different from everything else. Number one, it's not scripted. So we're not talking WWE here. It's not scripted. You don't know what's going to happen. But to me, one of the fascinating things is the yin and the yang. So for every great achievement, for every great player, for every awesome athletic feat, there has to be its mirror image, the exact opposite. Now, I, don't know, uh, I don't know if Tim is as fascinated by failure as I am. Uh, and I think there are certain failures that are more fascinating than others. You know, we can look at, and so we're just going to talk, you know, brief time looking at bad teams, bad players or just bad individual performances. So to start us off, since we've been talking golf, what if I were just to throw out just the, the worst performance you can remember on a golf course, be it a round of golf or like a single hole, what would be the, the one that immediately comes to your mind? Uh, Phil at 18 at Shinnecock. Where he he goes left. No, it's at Philadelphia at Wingfoot, I think, when I was and Jeff Ogilvy ends up winning this tournament, but Phil had like a two stroke lead or one stroke lead and he pulls driver and everyone's thinking, What's he thinking? Then he blows it into the like the hospitality tent, then he gets a free drop from the hospitality tent, and instead of making taking his medicine and punch it back out, he tries to hit a Phil shot and he blows the tournament. And this was before he won the Masters for the first time. So it was like, here goes Phil again. This is why he doesn't win majors. And, you know, then Montgomery had a chance and Montgomery blew it. And finally, the young Aussie, Jeff Ogilvy, hung on and ended up winning. But, yeah, Phil Mickelson, double bogey at 18 at, at Wingfoot. I've got a few that immediately come to mind. And, and this is uh, – and obviously – Tim wasn't alive when this one happened, but I, I remember watching it as a kid. T.C. Chen. T.C. Chen, I want to say the 83 or 84 U.S. Open. I can't remember which one. Andy North ends up winning it. He has like a seven or eight stroke lead going into the final round. I mean, he's just blowing this whole thing out. He gets to a par three, and that is the infamous double chip. Where it, it, it's not even a penalty now. I don't know if you knew that they changed that rule. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you know, back then it was a you know not only did, did the chip just not go anywhere near where he was supposed to, it's a penalty. So he ends up taking like a six or a seven on a par three, just something ridiculous, and he just completely goes in the tank. Uh, but there are individual shots that I can think of. Uh, my personal favorite is Mark McCumber has a one-inch putt, quite literally a one-inch putt. And he goes in to do like the little tap, and he taps it, but the ball doesn't go anywhere. So it counts as a stroke. Ugh. 
And I mean, I, I, he wasn't going to win the tournament, but it ended up costing him, you know, it, the, even back then, you know, probably twenty or $30,000 just between places that he would have. But I think, you know, Ian how, about, how about Gene Vandeville on the Oh yes, yeah. 18 at Karnuski. Well, you're just like had a three-stroke lead on the 18th tee box on the final day and he lost the tournament. That would have been like five iron, five iron way. I mean, that would have been just completely, you know, but uh the worst single shot I think I've ever seen ever was Ian Baker Finch. Uh Ian Baker Finch at the British Open, the uh uh St. Andrews. So 17's the road hole. 18 is the hole that has, you know, I don't know, what do they call that area in front of the green that's just like Death Valley or kind the of like Valley of Sin. Valley of Sin. Well, this isn't, it doesn't have anything to do with Valley of Sin. This is on the tee box. So to understand the way Lynx golf, particularly the old country, works, you have to hail a taxi, put the golf ball in the taxi, and drive it three miles for it to be out of bounds. I mean, there's practically no out of bounds anywhere. And so, yeah, 18, you cannot miss the fairway. I mean, I, I don't see any way you could miss the fairway. And then if you do miss the fairway, you have number one right next to it. Yeah, you go that into has, one fairway. That has its fairway. And so it's like, what you know, there's no way. And I don't know if you saw this shot, but you could look it up. He He is in the rough to the right of number one. So he has hit a, you know, pull hook of epic proportions where he not only misses the 18th fairway, he misses the first fairway and he's in the rough on the other side. I mean, you would have to, I mean, Tim would have to get up on the tee because I'm, I'm not long enough to do that. Tim would have to get up on the tee and just flat out, like go at a 45 degree angle and Aim that way and just absolutely bomb it the hell, you know, probably his biggest bomb he's ever hit in his life in order to get to that rough. Yeah, that's a that's a big miss. Not what you're looking for on on that course or that hole. I mean, yeah, on a hole that's drivable too. 18's drivable uh in today's world when when St. Andrews gets dried out. But I mean there's been there's been some pretty big I mean, when you think of disaster on the golf course or utter failures, I, I I also like I know he's not a golfer, but I mean, is it wrong to think of Charles Barkley? Like, I mean, he is the definition of a disaster on a like a guy who used to shoot in the eighties, who hit a spectator, developed a mental a block. I don't know if you remember it. Like Hank Haney hosted like a season of a reality show trying to trying to fix Chuck. And I remember like they're showing like side by sides at the end, like look how far his swings come. I'm like, are you, are you fucking kidding me? It's the same swing. Is he just got like a two second hitch instead of a five second hitch. Like it's still a hitch. Oh, I'm cringing over here. Cause I'm just, I'm, I'm picturing it. And you know, whatever uh, we went to, on a family trip to Hawaii uh, when I was in fourth grade. So this is this is 1985. I mean, 1984, 85, right? We play with we play. You know, Dad and I. Uh, I think we ended up renting clubs. I don't think we brought our own. Maybe we brought our own clubs. I can't remember. But we played this little muni on Maui, and we played with this local, and he has this swing where he's just looping it, 
And I was like, what the hell? And he actually hit the ball. But yeah, uh, Barkley's bad. Now, I think from a career standpoint, and this actually got sad after a while. Uh, and he's been a sports scumbag, so I don't feel too sorry for him. But Greg Norman, nobody had more near misses in, in, in majors than Greg Norman. And, you know, the worst one actually was, and I don't know if you remember this guy, uh, Robert Gomez. I don't know if you remember that name. It sounds uh, familiar. So Robert Gomez was one of these hot rookies. And they were making him sound so cool because, you know, when they, they did the, you know, get to know him, that he liked to listen to Tone Loke. So that kind of gives you a, a, a time frame of when this is happening, right? This is early 90s, you know, late 80s. Greg Norman, he's leading just a regular tournament. It's not a major. He's leading it by one shot. Robert Gomez, the only guy left on the course. So he has to birdie this the 18th hole in order to get into a playoff. He cans it from 176 out. Seven iron. Cans it. Eagle. He wins. I think it was the Arnold Palmer Nestle Invitationals where he did that. That sounds right. That sounds like the one. And so, and that's, you know, and if you're Greg Norman, it's like, what the fuck am I supposed to do with that? I mean, you can't do anything with that. But, you know, Larry Mize beating him with a chip in at the Masters. Just the number of times he's led, you know, going I mean, into he Sunday. was the guy. He was the guy that Jack chased down in 86 when Jack has the uh, before Tiger, or I'm not sure who was older, Tiger or Jack. But, you know, when Jack wins at 46 years old in 1986, it was Norman who was originally had the lead that day. No, and it was, uh, you know who else? There was somebody else who was in that tournament that was leading at the time when Jack started his back nine. So I think Norman was already out of it by then because I remember watching. Well, like, he started like, the day with the lead, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think he I think he went in the tank like the front nine. He, no, he did. He has a history of going in the tank on the final day at the Masters. You look at 96, he did it. Um, he, uh, what's, uh, Faldo chased him down at least once at well, the masters. Even when he was like, he was in his fifties, there was like one British open. I remember he was married to Chris Everett. Yeah. That was like 10 years ago. I think yeah, that was he, he got in contention. He got yeah. to like the 71st hole still in contention. And then he, uh, he had like a bad iron shot on the, on the 17th or 18th hole. If I remember. I think he's leading after after 54 holes. I think he was. I think he was tied. I think he was tied uh, for the lead. He was playing in the final group, if I remember. And it was at a course where um, it was real hard, real, real firm. Um, it might have been like Royal St. George because it wasn't about like hitting the ball as far because yeah. you could you it was you, you could run it out there. You could get away. Like I think Tom Watson, the next time it came to Royal St. George, was in contention there as well. Um, you know, well past his prime. Yeah. So, and Tom Watson is, is a legend over there. I mean, he's won, you know, numerous British opens. Yeah. And you want to talk about failure. I mean, who's got more second places other than Jack than, than Tom Watson, right? I don't know if you call runner up a failure, but it's not, it's not a win. Right. I mean, when you're right. when your intention is to win a tournament and you keep coming in second place to Jack Nicholas, um, it's, it's not, it's not a win. I think it depends, right? Because I, I think it, it depends on the nature of, yeah, it, nature of why you're in second. Cause I remember this happening at, it wasn't the last British open, but I, it may have been two or three years ago where the guy who had the lead going in, I want to say he shot like 67 or 68 on Sunday 
And the guy that beat him shot like a 63. Well, that might have been this year because Rory hit 18 greens, shot 68 because he had like – It was like uh, – two. Was, he had like several two-putt birdies and Cam Smith shoots like 64. And no, it may have been a few years ago because it wasn't those two. Because uh, I want to say it's like I want to say like Jim Furyk or somebody like. But I mean, that. imagine hitting every green in regulation, having no three pots. You have, uh, you know, shoot but, a sixty-eight and still lose. But that, but it, so that's where it's like that's not failure to me. That's just the other guy was better, you know. And if you, you know, that's the kind of golf you want to see. Norman, he had some unlucky moments where people did miraculous stuff, but a lot of that was just self-inflicted. And, and that's, you know, kind of what's sad with him. So if we shift our focus to, you know, the, the so-called three major sports. So this is where, you know, and this is going to ask an opening question here. Uh, are you more fascinated with bad individual play, bad team play, or, you know, single moments or extended moments? What, you know, what, what strikes your fancy? I mean, to be honest, Scott, like I, I don't study the failure as much. You know, I, I go the other way and even on say the bad teams, I always was trying to find the, the guy who outperformed, right? Cause you know, you and I both as Astros fans, uh, we had four or five years where we were the lapping stock of major league baseball. But even then I still had to find guys that I thought were pillars we could build around or, Hey, this guy's shining brightly in a sea of in a sea of shit, you know. I you know for a longest time I thought Chris Johnson was going to be that guy, or you know Brett Wallace when he first came up, and really thought after the trades that we you know we trade Berkman and uh, you know Brett Wallace is okay. Here's a guy, you know, and so I, even on on bad teams, I'm looking for that bright spot. Uh, I'm I don't know. It's I, I'm not drawn to that car crash as much, uh, you know, because like I. As we were talking about this, I, I had to go research. Like, I remember, like, hey, the Heat had some really bad years. The Dolphins had uh, a winless season. I remember that. Um, Baseball-wise, like, the Pirates were garbage for the longest time. The Ray- the Devil Rays were bad for the longest time. Um, Tigers were garbage for a while. But, like, I couldn't really tell you much about those teams. But I could tell you about... You know, the good Cardinals teams from the 90s, the good Cubs teams, the good Reds teams. Um, it's just I remember those teams more. What really got me interested in this topic initially, and, and this is a, a great book. Uh, if you uh, if you want a book to read, there's a book that I read, uh, Baseball's Dynasties, Baseball's Best Dynasties, uh, Rob Nyer and Eddie Epstein. Um, and so now the thing is, it's dated because it was written about the turn of the, the century. So, the last team it focused on. So, what you're saying is truly baseball's best dynasty is not featured. Yeah, if you're going to okay. focus on the yeah, that's but, yeah. I'm just talking about the Astros. So he focused on so what he what they did was and it was interesting is that they did is they took three year, so not a not a one off. You know, like your one off best teams, you took a three year run. Right. And so, like, if you're talking about the Astros, it wouldn't be 2017. It would be 2017 to 2019, uh, which I, I would say is probably if you're going to take their best run is probably if you're going to take the best three years within the run that we've currently had, that's probably it. Uh, 
I don't I think, know, 21 and 22 back-to-back World Series appearances. But you, you have to include a third season there. And then are you including 2020 or are you including 2020? ALCS appearance. Yeah. I, but, I'd, I'd go, if I could make it work with with massaging it, I'd go 19, 21, 22 and say 20, if, 20 doesn't count because of COVID. Yeah, if you did that, yeah, I'd be on, I'd be on board with that. So basically what they did is they took uh, run differentials. So they went with, uh, there's a thing called Pythagorean record which is what your record is expected to be, which the Astros really come off good in here because one of the things that normally happens when a team wins 100 or more games, it's because they've they've outplayed their expected record. I mean, they're winning one-run games. They're, you know, they're, the Astros haven't been like that. The Astros actually have been pretty much at where they were expected to be and in some seasons, even a little below yeah. when you win 100 games. Yeah, dude. so that's why, you know, I think Astro fans kind of have that feeling like, man, this team is really, really good, but you know, they could be better. But that's why. But one of the things they had a chapter in their book was, okay, we've talked about the best teams. What about the worst teams? And so that's when they go into like the 1899 Cleveland Spiders. Cleveland Spiders in a... 150 plus game schedule won 23 ball games. I mean, that's just. I just really listened bad. to a fantastic podcast about. So, worse than I think the Cleveland Spiders was the St. Louis Browns because the Browns at one point had won four straight. And then the owner who got his money through inventing, he, he opened a bar. And I like. The National League itself has a very interesting history, Scott. I don't know how, like, if you know a lot about the like the alcohol side of why the National League and the American Association both started. The National League was supposed to be like a rich man's classy league. Don't play on Sunday. We're not going to serve alcohol. Um, and the American Association was for the working class. You can get drunk as you can get crunk at American Association games, and the players were getting crunk as well. They were hiding alcohol in the fields. So this German immigrant starts a beer garden. Beer garden takes off in St. Louis. He opens a baseball team. Baseball team takes off. He's got a ton of money because there's a ton of drunks. Best team in the league for four years. Then they're garbage. And eventually he sells that team to the guy who owns the Cleveland Spiders. And he just just swaps the teams. The the St. Louis Browns go to Cleveland and the Cleveland Spiders came to St. Louis. They both kept their names. They just traded the rosters of both teams. It got worse than that, though. And I think, you know, baseball in the 19th century is a fascinating thing. Uh, If you want to, you know, Tim was talking about some, you know, some of the things that are going on. But here's one of the things that was crazy back then. You could own two teams. And yeah. so these guys and they, these guys often did that. So that's what happened with the Cleveland Spiders. Cleveland Spiders, you know, by the time they're in the tank midseason, they're like, hey, anybody we have here that can actually play, let's get them to my other team. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, you know, and so you really have to, you really have to, I, I even kind of put that in a separate category. I don't really consider the Cleveland Spiders the worst team because, of all those particular issues. Now, if you look at the 20th century and, and they actually, you know, Rob Nyer and Eddie Epstein, they have a huge debate in this book about who's the worst team because everybody assumes it's the 1962 Mets because they're the ones that, uh, that won only 40 games and they lost 120 games. Uh, 
we know the Tigers came very close uh, recently where they won 43 games. Uh, and so, but here's, you know, what made me think of this is after the Astros series, I haven't looked at the athletics in the box scores lately, but when the Astros series concluded, they were on pace to win 32 games. So if they're, if that pace were to hold, the athletics would definitely be the worst team in history since 1900. I don't think there would be any really debate there. And you look at that team and I'm looking at, you know, I don't know if there's anybody on that team I'd want. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, I think their first baseman is better than what we have at first base. Uh, they have a decent young catcher, but you know, that team is just absolutely bereft of talent. And they, they've already pretty much, uh, uh, really started the skids going towards Las Vegas and they're putting all their eggs in that basket. But I don't know that, that team, uh, that team, if they, if they continue and I don't see that they necessarily do that, but they could be the worst team in the last 120 years. I don't know when you look at, and again, I'm looking at this through the Houston centric view. When you look at some of the teams that the Houston Astros put out on a night in and night out basis between 2012 and 2013. Let me give you some of the guys who got regular at bats. Chris Johnson, Jordan Schaefer, Brian Bogusevic, Justin Maxwell, Brett Wallace, Matt Downs, Matt Dominguez, who we thought was going to be the future at third base because of how good his glove was. 2013, we take a quick peek. Okay, Altuve peers up. Jonathan, I'm sorry, Jonathan VR, famous for the butt slide. Brandon Barnes, uh, LJ Hose, Chris Carter, Robbie Grossman, who is now still a major league player somehow. Trevor Crow, Mark Krause, Jimmy Paredes, Rick Hank Keel. I mean, God, that was such a bad, such a, I mean, we, we had Eric Bedard. We wouldn't spend big money on Eric Bedard to come be uh, a pitcher. Wesley Wright somehow was the best pitcher in our bullpen. Like, I think there's an argument to be made that 2012, 2013 period for the Astros could be top five worst in the history of baseball, just of pure talent on the roster. Well, if you're doing that three year paradigm, probably. 2011 to 2013 is, is, is going to be up there. I don't think they're the worst ever because there's, you know, I, I make this point in several of my books, but the Phillies over a 20 year period averaged a hundred losses a season. Yeah. They had some tough times. Uh, so yeah, that, that's pretty bad. And, you know, it's funny. You mentioned some names that we remember thinking back at the time, Hey, this kid's not that bad. Matt Dominguez, Matt Dominguez, you know, <laughs> hey, he's got to play. No, no, he couldn't. You were wrong. Okay, but see, here's the funny thing about these bad teams. And this is, you know, and I mentioned a name to you on Saturday to follow here this year. And I don't know if you remember the name I mentioned. Do you happen to remember the name I mentioned? I don't know. It's been a long week. Okay. Jordan Lyles. For the, Kansas, right. Right. for the Kansas City Royals, he is currently 0-8 with a 7-15 ERA. 
Now, the last guy to lose 20 games is Mike Marath, you know, for that Tigers team that was really, really awful. Uh, but the thing is, is that you have to be a pretty good pitcher to lose 20 games. Yeah, you've got you to be – because they got to keep enough games to keep running you out there. Yeah, they got to keep running you out there every fifth day because you know you can't get there. Now the guy, because here's one that's to look up uh, on the baseball reference. Anthony Young, he is absolutely my exhibit A through Z about why wins don't matter if you're grading out pitchers. He has the single he is he is the record holder for the most consecutive losses as a pitcher. Would it be the nineteen ninety three one and sixteen season where he actually had a three seven seven ERA? Wrapped up with that other season, I think before it where he won only two games. Yeah, two and fourteen, then one and sixteen. Yep. In ninety two he had a four one seven, okay, whatever. But a three seven seven and to go one and sixteen, you got no run support. Yeah, his ERA plus was like one oh seven, which means he's seven percent better than the league average. Yeah. So Mets were terrible then though. The Mets were a terrible, terrible team at that point of their of their history. So this is you know, and, and this is what's fascinating to me because absolute failure. I mean, there you know, there are some very bad baseball players, but you got to be good enough to get that kind of run. Because you know, and I, I we went uh, started us uh, thing off air, and it started off for uh, there are two different versions of war. Now, the war I like to use, uh, I call it B war. It's baseball references war. Uh, Fangrass also has their own war, but uh, there's some of their war numbers are kind of kind of screwy, uh, if you ask me. Jose Abreu, who is not the worst player in baseball right now, that's what shocked me. Not the worst player in baseball right now has negative 1.1 war. Now, if he were to continue to play at the same rate that he is playing right now. That would be a minus 3.6 B war. Now, the last person to uh, to pull off this feat, we'll, we'll put that in air quotes. Uh, you remember the great Chris Davis with the Orioles. Sure, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and they're actually very, you know, their situations are very similar because Chris Davis, uh, just very early on in that huge contract the Orioles gave him, and he, he's a guy that hit 50-plus home runs in a season. So the Orioles give him this huge contract, and very early on, he just absolutely goes in the tank. But they're paying him a ridiculous amount of money, so they just felt like, okay, we just got to keep throwing him out there. That and the Orioles weren't going anywhere anyway because they've been one of the worst teams in baseball recently. You know, they just just last year they finally got back to respectability. Uh, so they kept throwing him out there, kept throwing him out there, kept throwing him out there. The guy couldn't get to the Mendoza line if it saved his life. He was hitting like maybe 160, 170. And that's where Abreu is right now. Abreu is making way too much money. The Astros feel like we have to keep throwing him out there. But any from any reasonable metric that you look at, because baseball reference even looks at the past five games, which is something new they, they started doing this year. Even in his last five games, his OPS is under 500 in those five games. 
I mean, it, it's, you know, and the, the funny thing is the two players that I know for a fact are worse than he is this year in war, Colton Wong with the Seattle Mariners. Thank you, Mariners, for signing him. That, that helps, you know, keep you down in the standings. And John Segura, uh, formerly of the Phillies, he's with the Marlins. He's trying to play third base. It ain't pretty, folks. And the is in order for you to be that bad in war, it can't just be that you're a bad hitter. It can't be just that. You have to be a absolutely crappy fielder too. The lowest Yeah, absolutely. The lowest in history, Jerry Royster, minus four point oh. So that, you know, that's the worst season in history. You know, do the Astros get there? Well, the thing is, is with the Astros is that eventually you're going to have to put your best night guys on the field. And, and there's no way that Jose Abreu is one of those guys. I mean, it's, it's sad to say. I said uh, before in the previous episode that I like to wait until Memorial Day in order to before I judge guys. Well, Memorial Day is Monday. So unless he goes. 12 for his next 12 it's pretty looking pretty weak there for Jose Abreu so you know he uh, he might be getting the hook uh, fever so gonna you know, shift gears to football uh, Tim mentioned a, f- a few teams the Miami Dolphins have had some rough years probably the worst team in history uh, was the expansion Buccaneers back in the mid to, uh, mid to late 70s uh, they lost their first 26 games, so they went 0-14, and, and then they started the next season 0-12. Uh, the great John McKay used to be at USC. He was their coach. Uh, one of the reporters at the time asked him, what do you think about the, your, uh, the execution of your offense? He said, I'm in favor of it. And, yeah, that was pretty much yeah, uh, <laughs> the best line that anybody could ever utter. But we've had a few other winless teams in there in recent memory. We have uh, the Detroit Lions uh, going 0-16. We have the Cleveland Browns going 0-16. Of course, the, the one seed that everybody remembers from the 0-16 Lions was Dan Orlowski, who is now one of the ESPN talking heads, former Texas backup quarterback, by the way. Uh, where he was trying to avoid a, a pass rush there deep in their territory. He's running around the end zone, and he accidentally runs out of the end zone, which is a safety. Uh, an embarrassing moment, uh, to be sure. Uh, so, you know, when Tim gets back in here for uh, real quick, you know, we'll, we'll see uh, worst football teams or worst football performances uh, I know that uh, he does not. He did not watch the 1993 uh, game live. He doesn't remember it anyway. The wild card game where the Texas, the Houston Oilers at the time, up 35 to three, lose 41 to 38. But we know the Colts this last year. They had a lead bigger than that against the Vikings, and they blow that one in the regular season. Of course, we have the uh, the Falcons famously being up twenty eight to three in the Super Bowl. They find a way to lose that game. So, 
that's where we're going to start with Tim. Okay, so uh, I just told him about Jerry Royster being the worst in history and negative 4.0. But when I shifted to football, we, we, we I, I talked about the, uh, the Buccaneers losing their first 26 games. John McKay saying that he was in favor of his offense's execution. Uh, but we talked about the the Lions going winless, the Browns going winless, and we talked about the Oilers blowing that thirty-five to three lead, the Falcons blowing that twenty-eight to three lead to Super Bowl, and the Colts this last year actually blowing a bigger lead than the Oilers did. So, throwing all that out there, which one of those sticks out the most as like just a really horrible thing? I think it's the uh, I think it's the Lions because they have that memorable um, the Dan Orlovsky out of the back of the end zone. Moment. Yeah, I mentioned that. I mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's that's the one. Um, yeah, the Buccaneers. You know, if you want to hear some blooper reels, that's pretty bad. Uh, basketball. I don't know that basketball has as many. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot of bad teams over the years. I think the worst one was. I mean, a- the Clippers were garbage for like ten straight years when I was growing up. They were. I mean, you had Elton Brand and nobody else. I think there was a '76ers team that won only twelve games, or is it nine? I can't remember. Um, Miami had one like that too, and then they drafted yeah. uh, Michael Beasley. Uh, D Wade was hurt that year, and then uh, Beasley was the second overall pick that year, if I remember correctly. Yeah, that was that was a rough time. Uh, I remember that, um, but I remember it was the Seventy Sixers, and I think there's you know been a few teams that have chased that. Uh, you mentioned the Clippers as an organization, right? That, that's probably the closest. You mentioned the St. Louis Browns. A lot of people consider them to be like the worst organization. Although the Philadelphia Athletics certainly would give them a run for their money after you know they they won the World Series. I, think, in I mean Timberwolves. Timberwolves have been garbage for most of their existence, minus a few of Garnett's years. But even then, they never reached any level of pin, like the pinnacle of success. I mean, I don't know. The Timberwolves are garbage. Like, they're literally straight garbage. See, I don't know if basketball lends itself to um, to as much of that, you know, very high, the Kings, very low. I mean, you look at the teams that are caught in bad cycles, though. Like, the Kings have not – it took them 10 years to get out of – being a garbage basketball team. Charlotte still um, is. Charlotte still is not a good basketball team. Um, the, I mean, the Wizards, the Nets for the longest time, and the only reason they did it is because they signed a bunch of high-end talent. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, I, I think. They've mentioned I, it. So what's mentioned, you know, and I, I remember hearing this, somebody talk about this was, uh, because they, they were comparing this to David Culley. They said there was a coach that the Oilers hired, I want to say in 73 or 74, who was about as bad. But, you know, what's funny is, is that Culley's team actually probably overachieved based on the talent that they had. I don't know how they win four games uh, when you look back on it. So I'm trying to think, like, who is, like, the worst coach you could think of any of the three. Sports. It's Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer with the Jaguars, and it's not even close. You think? Because I, 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 I'll give you, uh, I'll, I'll see your Urban Meyer, and I'll raise you a rich cotite. How about saving with the Dolphins? 
Yeah, that's pretty. Because I mean, Rich Kotite, what's funny about him is that he's he's the guy who was smoking a cigar during like training camp practices. You're like you're you're just you're you're, you're giving off that I don't give a shit vibe. <laughs> you know, you're doing that. Um, I mean, I I put I put there's three bad coaches. I'll put in the same grouping together, and I'll give you the Saban. I'll give you Urban, and the third is former Astros manager Jimmy Williams, who was just about as awful as he could be in that position. What ib. The what ib. So my my favorite part of the Jimmy Williams experience was what I lovingly call YMCA Sunday. And so, you know, if anybody doesn't know YMCA, basically they have rules that everybody has to play. And they have to play a certain amount. So this is the Jimmy YMCA Sunday where I am going to empty my bench every Sunday. And I am going to stick every one of those motherfuckers in the game at the same time. And you're like basically telling, you know, that you're telling the ticket buying audience and you're telling the other team, just take this one. Go ahead. Just take this game. It's okay. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Williams. Jose Vizcaino's turning at shortstop today. Well, and his funny thing was what he said about relief pitchers. He said that relief pitchers should be able to pitch one inning every day. So, so you want your middle reliever to go out there and throw 162 innings? Is this is, is this really a good idea? <laughs> I don't, I don't. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, he, he was bad. And the funny thing is when they hired him, he had managed in Toronto, came in second place every single season. Managed in Boston, came in second place every single season. And got fired because he made a poor managerial decision to leave a tired Pedro Martinez in the ball game and didn't take him out. And then what does he do here? He makes poor managerial decisions. So I think that one was an epic failure. He didn't oh, even make yeah. it. He got fired year one in favor of Phil Scrap Iron Garner. Nah, he made he made it more than a season. I thought he he got fired and Garner was the interim manager and took us on uh, in two thousand the playoffs in two thousand five. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Uh, or 2004, you're right. Yeah, so he's hired but in 03. He, but he he had made it a whole year, I thought, because he got fired. He made it through 2003, I think, and then got fired midway through 2004. That sounds, I think we fired Durker in 2002. Yeah, he was uh, after 2001 because he, uh, he actually had gone to the playoffs and they still fired him. November of 2001, you're right. The, he, he was fired from the Red Sox in August of 2001. Because basically, Biggio and Bagwell ran him out of town. That's basically what ended up happening there. Uh, that's he had what, to go. He had to go. That's one thing they, they talked about behind the scenes, that you know they, they just didn't want him back. And so, uh, and he's a guy, I, I've met him. And I've, you know, you're talking Durker got ran out of town? Yeah. Oh, okay. Durker got ran out of town by Biggio and Bagwell. Um he uh, he's a guy whose personality changed big time when he had that seizure, uh, because he you know he uh, he was just uh, in many ways mean when we were at our saber meetings. Like I think I made a presentation and then he made like this offhand comment about because I brought my wife with me because this is you know just you know she wanted to see me make a presentation. He says. You know, we got all these nerds who are bringing their wives with them just so they could look normal. And I was like, fuck you, dude. You know, just, you know, it was a, a horrible. But anyway, 
Yeah, I, I think Jimmy was bad. Uh, Terry Collins. Terry Collins was bad back in the 90s. He lasted a little bit longer. He's the one that did not play John Cangelosi because, quote-unquote, all he does is get on base. It's like, you stupid son of a bitch. That's the whole point of the game. Uh, but, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bo Porter, I put into a different category. You know, I kind of put uh, the guy right before. Uh, who was that before him? Uh, Mills. Oh God, Brad Mills, Mills was terrible. It was that Cecil was, Cecil Cooper was terrible. Oh, too. that was rough. Yeah, Cecil Cooper was a rough. Yeah, that was some rough. Scrap Iron was not good. Do you want to talk about a guy who made a collection of bad decisions that somehow worked out in his favor and ended up in the World Series? Was Phil Garner like? I every one of his decisions is like the opposite of what you should have done, and it somehow worked out in his favor that year. Yeah, I, I he came to one of our Saber meetings, and, and I loved hearing his old stories as a player. Uh, particularly, he came up with the A's. He came up with that, you know, that team that won you know three consecutive World Series, and that was a wild team. And so that, there were some really great stories there. But when you start asking him questions about managing, and he, I mean, just the rigid thinking, I was like, hey. I asked him once and said, do you think you'd ever think about bringing in a closer? Not in the ninth inning, you know, when you have like a high pressure situation, you know, maybe saving the seventh or the eighth. Oh, no, no, I'd, I'd never do that. It's like, Tuh. okay, <laughs> we see where you're at. Um, but yeah, it, there's been some bad managers in Houston over the years, uh, definitely. Uh uh, Hal Lanier won in 86, and then he kind of fizzled out after that. Uh, I remember him. Uh, Bob Lillis, you know, I kind of remember him. Uh, Art Howe uh, is another guy, you know, managed at Houston for a while. Uh, the famous interaction I had, I, I brought a friend of mine. Uh, when I worked uh, in the Astrodome, my job was we were part-time scrounge crew. And so we would do the chalk lines before the game, and we would replace second base. Uh, during the uh, right after the fifth inning, in between right before the start of the sixth, and so we pull up the base, put in the new base, rake around, right? And so we're raking around the game, and he goes to my buddy who he's never done this before in his life, and he goes right to him. They've got two chairs in their dugout. I don't have two chairs in my dugout. Where the hell are my two chairs? <clears throat> and it's like you've asked. The absolute wrong person that question because he doesn't know anything. I mean, it was a cool job, but we didn't know anything. We were just there. They would let us go into the dugout. We could pick out all the gum and sunflower seeds we want. But, I mean, we were just basically being paid 20 bucks a game to rake for a few minutes and watch a game. I mean, it was probably the best job I've ever had. Well, Scott, after all these disasters that we've discussed there's been some disastrous uh performances or um disastrous actions in the sports world this week and you know i i know uh for your thoughts there was a little bit of a shitty situation uh with the houston astros why don't you tell us about your sports scumbag this week well, you're, you're mentioning uh, the Jose Altuve story, which is not directly related uh, to mine. But I'm going to go with the Astros training staff because I don't really know who else to pin this on. And I've already pinned it on Jeff Bagwell earlier and Jim Crane. 
the Astros training staff, there are two things that bug me. Number one, it takes guys forever to recover from injuries. Now, Altuve recovered pretty quickly because we were expected eight to ten weeks on Altuve. And he came back for the end of May. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call that a win. But you get just the, the messaging and the combination we get Lance McCullers, who's supposed to throw off a mound and off a bullpen. Then all of a sudden, they scrapped that this past weekend. And, they, and Dusty Baker, God love him, goes out in front of everybody. It's not a setback. Okay, in what universe is this not a setback? Because you were telling us, oh, he's going to come back in June. Eh, nope, that's not going to happen. Uh, maybe by the All-Star break? Maybe? Maybe August again? Well, damn it. This guy was out last year until August. What the hell is going on, you know, with Lance McCullers Jr.? Okay, number one. Number two, we're going to send Michael Brantley out on a rehab assignment. And then all of a sudden we're going to say, well, it's not a setback, but uh, he's not ready to come up. In fact, he's going to have to stop swinging a bat for a while. Uh Maybe, you know, maybe he'll come back maybe by the spring of 2026. We're not really sure. Uh, but I'm exaggerating to make a point. It's just the the number one, how do we handle these injured guys? Because to me, either McCullers is injured or he's not. Okay, if he's not injured, it should not be taking him five months to ramp up for a season. If he is injured, then, you know, maybe we ought to consider surgery because, you know, damn it, this waiting around until August is just not working out well for us. Number two, you know, we probably shouldn't have signed Brantley anyway, but, you know, what are we doing? You know, and but and then there's the messaging around these things. And, and, uh, and I've joked with Tim offline. I've joked with other people. Dave Javecki, I don't know if you, you want to look him up. He was a uh, he was a heartwarming story until it was a very frightening and disastrous story. He had a long he had cancer, came back and made it back to the mound. He had to have his right arm amputated because the injury that he suffered on the mound was that horrible. If he were a member of the Astros then, with their current training staff. And management cycle, it would be right shoulder discomfort. That would arm be- pain. Arm yeah, pain. he had arm pain. I mean, if if we watch the, you know, if you watch the movie uh, The Naked Gun, you could see like one of the baseball players being decapitated, you know, by a fly ball. You know, if that happened, you know, uh, sore neck. I mean, that it, and so if you combine the messaging that we're getting on these guys with the fact that it just takes. Most of these guys, Altuve, set aside, except for his digestive issues. But hey, I'm with you. I'm with you, Jose. I've had those too. It happens. You know, you, uh, you take care of you. You you be, you be the best you. But with the other version, with McCullers and Brantley, I just don't know where to go from here. I mean, it's just, and and you're paying McCullers seventeen million dollars a year. We're in year two of a five year deal. I don't know where, uh, you know, and, and, and they talked about, well, if we could ramp him as a starter, says, hell, put him in the pen. 
You know, maybe we could put, you know, Rafael Montero on the disabled list with unexplained suck. Um, or whiplash. I like whiplash. Um, but it, it's just, yeah, you, maybe you could do that with Jose Abreu. Just, you know, I, I, actually, I have a perfect name for it. Uh, unexplained diminished, uh, diminished returns. That, that would be it. I think you should throw him on the DL with with what they put Kaz Matsui on the DL back in the day. Anal fissure. <laughs> I remember as I was like a freshman in college, I was like, I I have to go look up what an anal fissure is. And it's like, there's two ways you could get one of these. Let's hope it wasn't the first way. Oh, yes. I, those are memories. Uh, no, let's not do that to him. He's a good guy. Let's just let's just call it, you know. Where's that Astros training staff, though? That would have been like, uh, you know, Latin. What would have been like derriere discomfort? I don't even know what they would have called that. But they just straight up put Kaz Matsui on blast and put this guy at the time on the DL with anal fissures. Abdominal distension. Maybe uh, something like that. Because I don't know if you ever wa- you know, watched the the SNL. Did you ever watch the uh, the Cola Blow commercial? No, I don't think I've seen that one. So you have Phil Hartman, and he's sitting there eating like a high fiber cereal. And it says, "Yeah, looks like you have a high fiber cereal there." Uh, it says, "Yeah, fiber's good for you." But you know this cereal, Cola Blow. It has the most fiber on the market. Do you want to guess how many bowls of your leading cereal it would take to equal one bowl of cola blow? And he's going, two, no, five. No, finally he gets up to nine. This is not even close. It would take 20,000 bowls. <laughs> and then at the end, they said like, oh, I get it. Cola blow must be the, the highest fiber cereal on the market. So not anymore. Now that we have super cola blow, and the super cola blow is like black. It's like you're eating coal. And then at the bottom says, please consult your physician. May cause abdominal distension. <laughs> I was like, yes. So, yeah, uh, maybe we could just, uh, just call it a Pepto moment. You know, maybe move on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm with you on that one. Uh Scott, this week my my sports scumbag is a guy I normally have a lot of respect for. Um LeBron James. I I I don't I'm not one of those guys who thinks he's the GOAT or, or anything like that, but I I have a lot of respect for LeBron. I respect his game, I respect what he's done for the NBA, what he's done for kids. But, you know, Last week or the end early this week, LeBron's Lakers get swept out of the playoffs. And what's the immediate discussion? It's you know for about a minute it's the it's the sweep. But what does LeBron turn into? I might retire. I, I this might be it for me. Well, we all know that's not the case because he said numerous times he'd like to play with his son Bronny. His goal is to to stay and sign a one-year deal with whoever drafts Bronny, and then he's going to play with them together. He said that for five years. Now you get swept, and you don't want people talking about the sweep, and so you float the littlest Tom Brady-ish retirement rumor out there. So all of a sudden, the conversation is, is this it for LeBron, as opposed to Denver works LeBron. And, it, and it's unfair to Denver because you know what? Jamal Murray was absolutely fantastic in that series. And Jokic is is so much fun to watch. 
And these guys should be getting a level of hype going into the NBA Finals that they're not getting because right now we're talking about the totality of LeBron James's career, and it's a great career. And look, again, LeBron's done a lot of things for a lot of people, and he's lifted a lot of people out of poverty, and he's helped kids go to school. And again, I tip my hat to everything LeBron James has done. I just do not like that you can't handle a little negative press because you got swept in the Western Conference Finals. You know, as a side note, I'm absolutely rooting for Denver because, number one, Denver, I don't think they've ever won an NBA title. They Uh, have not. uh, But number two, I think so much around Jokic is is just key here because people keep talking about, oh, you can't win with a big man who's a distributor. Uh, you can't win if you don't have a big man who's a rim protector. And there are a lot of these big men around. I know they a lot. There's there's a few of these big men around the game. We have one in Houston, Sangoon, uh, who has, you know, similar skills. You know, Jokic obviously is playing at a whole different level, but you know, different. Uh, but similar skills. Yes, Sabonis out Sacramento uh, is a similar player. And I think... I hate the idea that there's only one way to win. I think that, you know, there it has to be more than one way to win. And I think you can, you know, you can shape an offense and you can shape a, a game around what a guy like Jokic does. And I'm glad that they're finally, you know, showing that you can do this. And uh, you're absolutely right on the fact that the focus should have been on how great the, uh, the Nuggets have played. I mean that's you know that should be the focus. They've they've made, they've run through they ran through the Suns who a lot of people thought were going to be you know the representatives in the West. So I mean that's you know and the thing is with LeBron there is absolutely nothing worse than the memory of a great player because and, and you can see this the most famous example in history is probably 1973 Willie Mays. Uh, playing for the Mets in the World Series and falling down in the outfield. And you're just like, man, this guy was the greatest ever. And Look what's happening right now. I think LeBron is at a point right now where he can easily still exist in the NBA. He can easily play well. He just can't play the same way he did when he was 28. He's not that guy anymore. And the problem was is that there was late in, that, uh, late in those games, he's just jacking up threes. And you're like, you can't, you know, it's almost, you know, he, it almost reminded me about how bad, you know, Russell Westbrook looks at times, whatever he's jacking up, you know, shots. And you're like, this is not your game, dude. You're, you're not a distant shooter. And LeBron has never been a great distant shooter. He's always had a really good mid range game. He's been a guy that could post up, especially if you're going to guard him with a wing, a fellow wing, Good luck with that. You're not going to beat LeBron. Um, I mean, he's a guy that's great in transition, uh, creates for other people, but you're not a volume shooter. You're just not. And, and you know, you're especially not going to be that at 38. And Anthony Davis clearly is the best player on that team. And when he was playing like the best player on that team, they were usually winning. But what happens? LeBron's, you know, I'm LeBron. I got to be the guy. I got to hit this dagger three that's going to, you know, you know, going to stab their heart. It's like, no, because, I mean, I think in game one or game two, they were down by like five. 
and three possessions in a row, he just goes down to court and just jacks up threes. Yeah, and also game in that over. game too, Jamal Murray just took that game over. I mean, Jamal Murray was – he was him, I mean, in that series. And so it's going to be a great NBA Finals regardless of who Denver plays. I'm, I'm pulling for Jimmy Buckets. I'd love to see – Love to see the Heat get in there, uh, and then you know you talk about conspiracy theories. A lot of pe- people think the uh, Houston-born and bred Jimmy Buckets is uh, the love child of Michael Jordan. Well, you know it could be, but what is great about that one too is that they were in the playing tournament. Yeah, and so I think where this is going to go, and I'm hoping Miami gets in there too, because what I hope this is going to go is that. A lot of teams, like the Rockets, let's say this next year, let's take they take a step, and they are in playoff contention. I think the problem that you still have is that a lot of people feel like, you know, I really don't want to be the 10th best team in the conference because we'll get into that playing tournament, we won't be in the lottery, and we have no chance in hell to win. Well, look what Miami's done. They're about to go to the NBA Finals. You know, because they've gotten hot at the right moment. And Jimmy Butler, absolutely, he is a guy, he is a throwback. Because he is a guy that shows up to play offense and defense every single night. And they've got some good young players. But this is one where, you know, Spolstra, I don't think he got enough credit for, you know, being able to win with the big three. Because everybody assumed it was the big three. But we've seen big threes before. The Rockets had one, never won. Um, I mean, we saw, you know, Boston obviously won with the three amigos once. Uh, but we've seen other big threes. You know, you had Harden, you had uh, Durant, you had you know, Irving in, in, uh, in Brooklyn. They didn't win. Ginobili, Parker, Duncan. Yeah, I mean, well, they, those, those guys won. But I'm saying, you know, having a big three – doesn't guarantee you a title. Spolstra won a couple of titles with those guys. I would love to see him, if it's not Denver, I'd like to see Miami win it because of what that means. Number one, you can win it all. It's coming from the playing tournament. And Spolstra, I think, will finally get a lot of respect as a coach, which I think he deserves because I think he always has his teams playing well. Well, Scott, I think that's – about all that we're going to have here for this one as we fought hard to get a get a sports episode out for everybody this week. We uh, hope to get back at it again next week with our normal um, two-part episodes like we normally do. But as Scott mentioned, the day job is, is starting to pick up a little bit here as we're right in the heart of the season. Um, but hey, enjoying it, having a good time. Uh, and I hope some of our Snaphook listeners uh, – are going to become Giles fans. Haven't had anyone call my ticket taker a scumbag yet, Scott. So uh, that one has still not been tested out. But, hey, you know, we still got four home games left. So, you know, the suggestion I made last week, and you can try this, um, I don't know if there'll be a show in between now and your next home game. Uh, but if you go to the ticket office and you say, the Astros treating staff is a scumbag. Or if you say LeBron James is a scumbag, maybe give it a discount. Sounds good. But uh, we will have two scumbags for you next week on our political show because we took a week off. So please interact with us on the fan page. Uh, 
Tim and I have definitely have no shortage of scumbags to choose from, but maybe somebody has missed our attention. Maybe somebody is stuck in your craw that you really want to be labeled a scumbag. Give us a shout out on the Facebook page. Reach out to us on Twitter. You know, give us a, you know, give us a ring. You know, if you see Tim out on, uh, at the game, you know, hey, you say, hey, you know, this person's a scumbag. And, and we'll see. Uh, we can, we can enter, uh, we can definitely uh, have a fan choice scumbag uh, if anybody wants to, you know, to volunteer and throw somebody on the, on the block for us. Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's get it. Um, but again, that's all we've got for you this week. We appreciate everybody who joined on and made us a part of your week and hopefully a great capper to the end of your week. But until next time, we are the snap hook. Thank you for tuning in to the snap hook and making Scott and I a part of your week. Wanted to recognize that our intro song is called Energetic Indie Rock by Alex Grohl, and this outro music is Good Vibe by Twisterium. We appreciate everyone who tunes in each and every week and is part of the Snaphook movement. We look forward to seeing you next week on the Snaphook.